Welcome to Refuge Radio. I'm Gaines Taylor, pronouns he, him. And I'm Brendan Bell, pronouns he, him. Thanks for joining us, everyone. We are so excited. This is the start of season two. Woo! It's been a year. It's for all of us. We've had great time on the show, outside of the show. Well, still a great time, but it's been a crazy year. So, but we're here. We're here. I know. I think I speak for both of us when I say we've really enjoyed the discussions we've been able to have with each other. We've really enjoyed the guests that we've had on the show, and we hope that all of you have gotten as much out of it as we have. I know we've learned a lot and we've grown a lot uh, because of what they shared with us. And and now we are looking forward to the things ahead for this year for all of us. So, Absolutely. And speaking of all of us, like we realized we love our family and we would love to know like what should this family be called? Every listener base needs a nickname, needs a name to call themselves, that sense of just togetherness. And we don't have that for our wonderful listeners out there yet. So throw some recommendations our way and you can do that on the Discord that is launched. Woo! Yes. Yeah, the Discord has been is such a great way for us to connect with all of you and even more importantly for all of you to connect with each other and uh, really begin to build some meaningful community, especially for those of you who are in places in your life or circumstances in your life where it's really hard to find other queer people, especially queer people with a faith background and uh, beginning to find that support. This can be such a, a great place for you to begin to do that. Yeah, absolutely. And we're having like great discussions on there. Everything from like your deeper stuff, theology and stuff, but also to just fun. We're posting pictures of all our pets. We've got some puppers on there, cats on there, all types of fun stuff. So it's not all deep heavy. If you want to come just have a fun time, join us. And you can find that Discord through our new website, our home at refugefaith.org. So there's been a lot of cool stuff at the start of this year. And so we're looking forward to having you join us and just become part of the family. Before we jump into the rest of our show, we actually have a quick word from our sponsor. Our sponsor this week is Podcast Yes, yes Jesus. Jesus. It is a weekly faith and sexuality affirming podcast that believes you don't have to choose between being queer and loving God. And we also believe those things as well. It is hosted by two lovely individuals, actor and comedian Danny Francesi and former televangelist Azariah Southworth. The podcast itself is loosely modeled after traditional Sunday service, but with a more modern and inclusive perspective with a lot of humor and a lot of fun. It asks big questions like, how do you negotiate your faith and your sexuality when broader culture tells you that these things are at odds with each other? And is it okay to thank God for a great blowjob? I think so. I, I agree. I also think so. Previous guests have included activists, celebrities, clergy, and so much more. Yes, Jesus is a positive, uplifting, heartfelt, and funny show that is focused on community above all else. New episodes are every Sunday. Worth your time. Definitely check it out. They have some wonderful episodes. 
Um, recently, they've had one on St. Betty White. I highly recommend you check that out. They've got episodes on power of prayer, episodes on affirming theology. Is it time to leave your church? Is it time to stay at your church? How do you change your church? All these things they cover. And it, it's just a wonderful podcast hosted by wonderful people. Definitely check it out. Please subscribe to Yes, Jesus on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find your podcasts. Y'all in for very special treats today. We have a very special guest, Darren Calhoun. He is an activist. He is a worship leader. He is a photographer. He is a speaker. And even more than that, he is just a wonderful human being with a lot of wisdom. And we hope that his story inspires you as it inspired us. Hey, everybody. I'm Darren Calhoun, uh, joining from Chicago. If you want to talk about me, you can use the pronouns he, him. And I do a number of things. I keep myself busy as a worship leader at Urban Village Church here in Chicago. Um, I'm also a singer and speaker in the band called The Many. And we're making progressive and inclusive and justice-informed worship music, songs for lament, and things that just remind us of love and hope. Um, I'm also somebody who serves with LGBTQ Christian organizations like uh, Q Christian Fellowship, where I serve on the board there and I speak. And then um, when I'm not busy with all of that, pretty much anything that's at the intersection of race, uh, LGBTQ justice, um, and the church, I'm in the middle of that. So keep myself a little busy, but here I am. Yes. I was about to say, it sounds like you have a lot of free time on your hands. <laughs> I am twiddling my thumbs all day long. <laughs> That's well, wonderful. Thanks, thanks That's for joining us today. Yeah. Yeah. Glad to be here. So Darren, tell us a little bit about growing up. What was your relationship with the church like? So we're, I know we're in, we're in ministry now, but growing up for you, what did that look like? Yeah. Uh, my earliest before church was a thing for me. My family was Christian, but we weren't part of a church. Um, and somewhere around fifth or sixth grade, uh, we, my mom and I started attending a, a, a Catholic church on the south side of Chicago. And eventually, about seventh grade, I joined that church and got baptized and confirmed there. And and as is true to me, I immediately got involved with like the youth group, all that stuff, and was super active right through high school and into college, um, where eventually I helped plant a campus ministry. And that starts my journey with this, a non-denominational church that the campus ministry became connected to. It sounds like we were super involved. What kind of drew you to that space? What was it about that? that was um, attractive to you? It sometimes it sounds weird to say, but I, I think I've kind of always been like a natural leader. I did struggle with friendships and connections uh, as a kid, but I had a lot of skill and ability. So adults usually wanted me involved in stuff. And so being involved with planning trips or creating retreats or something was just kind of a natural fit for me as a shy, nerdy kind of kid. And then as you get older, I think we start making meaning of the things we do and seeing that I was good at making spiritual events. It was just kind of a natural, a natural fit for me. So kind of in the midst of all this, 
we're in this Christian culture, we're in positions of leadership. When did you kind of first start to suspect that there was something maybe different about you or there was something gay about you specifically? Yeah, because I've always been weird, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, at, for 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 many of many of my my queer siblings, well, some people knew when they were like young, young, and if I do some recursive history stuff, I was like, well, I was certainly lip syncing to Patty Labelle at a very young age, but we're not going to walk down that path today. Instead, we're going to talk about puberty. Because that was when all the crushes that, you know, all the movies said, you're going to suddenly feel a crush on, on girls and all the books in school, including our sex ed book, was talking about how you're going to develop these intense feelings for girls. And the, the other kids in my class were developing these feelings. And I'm, I was, uh, I was, a, I tended to be younger because I kind of skipped a grade earlier in school, but I was like, yeah, when are those feelings going to kick in for me? And instead of me getting the crushes on girls, like everybody told me I was going to get, I would have these intense focuses on certain guys in, in class. And I didn't know what to do with that. And I was a nerdy kid. So I went and looked in books and let, looked in a lot of books. And was like, well, maybe this is a, maybe this is a part of socialization or maybe this is, Maybe this is just a phase. Maybe this is just exploration. I was trying to find all the reasons why, why I didn't have the same attractions that everyone else seemed to be having. I definitely can identify with this. I used to think I was so convinced that I had low testosterone. Nice. Um, yeah. When I was a teen, I was like, <laughs> I just have low testosterone because my like beard wasn't coming in. Like I was kind of like developmentally slower as well. So similar to... And so I was like, yeah, I just need like to get some testosterone and then all of these things will fall into place. Oh, wow. I'd never even considered that one because now in 2022, everything is an advertisement for testosterone supplements and treatments. And oh, I'm glad I didn't have that one to navigate. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the stories we tell ourselves. I think, I think the intense friendship part I get because like looking back, just remembering one friend who was like my best friend it's like yeah I want to hang out with them all the time like <laughs> I should invite them to this and invite them to this and like right. why can't we just hang out <laughs> we should have a sleepover again this weekend <laughs> so <laughs> fortunately my best friend was my cousin so I I didn't have to give that part blurry <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but but yeah there were certainly like I remember I, I did not like to like rough house or anything, but there was one boy in the neighborhood and we wrestled once and it was just like, what was that? <laughs> yep. This is something fun in a weird way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> something happened here. Right. So how did that start affecting your like ministry at the church or maybe not start, but what, what was the interaction with that at the church you were at? So, you know, like I said, we were planning all these retreats and shut-ins and lock-ins and 
it was a it was a very quiet kind of private inner struggle at some point I can't remember when but at some point I did share with my cousin that I was feeling the struggle and in retrospect I had no clue how much of a gift it was to be able to share with you know somebody who was important in my life and not have any judgment or backlash or even felt like not not even feel like I was being treated differently in any kind of way um but when it comes to church I didn't tell anyone in my church um was the kind of church where it's just like we were all like nice people like everyone was kind of working class and we didn't really the worst thing we talked about in the church was gossip so like it I didn't in that part of my church experience before college, I didn't have um, any kind of like legalistic things or any kind of condemnation things. Um, but I did have enough culture around me in society where I wanted to get rid of this or get this worked out. And so I would do the thing where you write down your burdens on the piece of paper and throw it in the fire or every time you come back from a retreat you're like I really want to purify my mind so I'm not going to think about this anymore and you know if you say don't think about an elephant boop, what guess what happens <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> been down that road so it was so in a lot of ways it was feeling it was kind of like feeling attention of I have to do something about this but I don't know what to do and in some ways, yeah, in some ways, feeling like I needed to resolve my sexual confusion at the time, I did try to, like, experiment and try to figure it out. And took some some pretty bold risks. Like, the first time I drove as a 16-year-old as a on my own with my newly minted license was to go see a guy who lived out in the suburbs like <laughs> on the expressway all by myself because I'm trying to figure this out and I can't talk to anybody about it and so the 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 way that connects is I think it kind of set me up to be trying things and being bold with experimenting with things because it's like well I, I couldn't have articulated it back then, but it was like, well, I've tried that. So I certainly can try these things for God or for, you know, whatever else. And always having this feeling like God is with me, which I think we'll end up coming back to later. But yeah, there was some wild stuff that ended up happening. And it was just like, wow, in retrospect, I really could have lost my life on several occasions. Mm. But, uh, but yeah, it gets, it gets really, really hairy later. At this point in your life that we're talking about right now, Darren, how would you define your relationship with God? Like, what did that look like? What did that feel like for you? At this point, the relationship with God was just kind of present. Like I said, my relationship with God started before my relationship with the church. And so God was just kind of there. And I had a very general sense of God loving the world and me being part of the world. But yeah, at that point, it was just, you know, do good things for God was kind of the, the ethos. At that point, <laughs> there's a big shift coming. Spoiler alert. <laughs> <laughs> now, I know I've read part of your story, and I know that at the age of 17, you choose to come out. Can you tell us a little bit about what prompted that decision? And then what did that look like? Like I said, I was I was a bit on the younger side and and uh, I started college at 17. And uh, one of the roommates that I had 
at some point found something probably porn on my computer and it tipped him off to the idea that I I was gay and he he tried to get me to admit it and I didn't but he and some of the football players like started kind of targeting me and like threatening to blackmail me started stealing stuff out of my room and they thought they were going to have this power over me and the 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 weird little kid that I was was like you have no power here I think that movie hadn't even come out yet but I decided it was like no even if this got out the people who matter love me so I'm gonna take this power back I'm not gonna go back and forth with you about this quote-unquote secret I'm just gonna tell everybody and I told everybody on campus I told everybody at church I told everybody walking I think I probably stopped a few people on the street and was like hey I'm black I'm Christian I'm gay deal with this <laughs> <laughs> I literally wrote a poem and that was like the key line in the poem That's but awesome. uh but yeah it was just like no you're not gonna you're not gonna try to hold this over my head yeah what an empowering decision for you to make for yourself at such a young age absolutely again hindsight being 2020 i didn't realize how big a deal it was and for context uh this was this was literally about the same time that ellen degeneres had come out oh wow yeah (laughs) so in context she was the first like celebrity at that moment to come out i mean yes there were other celebrities in the past um many years before that but it was it wasn't the same context. And so when when she came out, it was like, what's going to happen? Are they going to cancel the show? Is she going to have a career? And much later, we do find out that she got she lost lots of opportunities. She had years where she didn't work. And while I wasn't worried about losing things at school or with my family, it wasn't clear what would happen. Um, the school actually wanted me to start a, a gay straight alliance club. Those were still knew it wasn't standard <laughs> at that point and um some people were very supportive and other people were very kind of divided it's like well you can't be christian and gay and that was actually the first time that i started hearing like opposition and people would assert things like well that's the devil wanting to take away your your future and your and your legacy and you know, you just need to pray. You need to, you need to see what the Bible says about this. And so, yeah, it was, it was the first time that I, that I opened the Bible for myself. Cause in a Catholic context, you really just, you know, read it out of the, out of the uh, bulletin for the day. So this is the first time I'd opened the Bible for myself to really find out what did the Bible say? And I read the scriptures and wasn't sure what to do with it. And like I said, I didn't come from this kind of legalistic background so it's just like okay don't know what to do with that but here I am at the moment (laughs) and so what was the what was the impact for you in that moment of these voices telling you these things and then you reading the scripture for the first time with the set of eyes yeah I didn't know what to do with it but it put me into conversations because people then felt the need to tell me what they believed. Uh, a young lady's mother that I had previously dated 
more so because you know like you're a teenager and you're supposed to date so okay <laughs> so you know had dated a girl um but her mother was like well you know if you come to our church we can pray for you and we can we can pray that spirit out of you and and you got to let that spirit go that kind of stuff and at some point um a person who later became my my roommate he was new on campus he he started the year after me and uh, I had done my my infamous coming out poem for him and he kind of retorted back with well what does God want for your life and in the context I'd grown up in it wasn't like God had this specific plan or or you know it or demand of my life and so that was a question I never explored before and we decided to have a bible study together and I invited one of my friends who I you know trusted and I was like I'm not gonna have him like trying to tell me what you know what the bible says and we started we sat down and and read through some of the scriptures from the from the perspective of what does God want for your life and that was and still is a very curious and interesting question we said okay well this is a good little time together let's do this and that was the beginning of that campus ministry we decided we'd do this every week and invited a few friends and probably within the time of a month later I had this uh, born again charismatic Pentecostal moment where um, I was we were in a Bible study and kind of everybody was crying and we had again this really profound moment or encounter with God Holy Spirit lots of stuff uh, but in that in that encounter I felt like I just want to be Christian I don't I don't want to be anything else I just I just want to be Christian and in that in that context it I felt like I didn't need to identify as gay anymore and that I threw away all my rainbow flags and just made all these very drastic changes to uh to just surrender to God looking back I, I do realize that there was some there was some important things that God was doing foundationally in me to help me like to see like there's this great purpose for me that that God is in personal relationship with me and not simply it's not just God loves the world but God loves me in particular me with all my stuff and my failures and my shortcomings and that was a really important message to to begin to realize but what was also happening is this kind of separating myself from uh, the sexual orientation that I understood didn't suddenly start being attracted to women, but I was willing to let everything go. And that becomes a pattern that goes on for many years of me just like trying to surrender my way into the perfect will of God. And so it, because I'd been out as the first person to come out on campus publicly, as well as because I'd been involved in lots of student leadership, it was a big controversy. Not only had I come out first, but now I'm also not identifying as gay and, and people are just in a tizzy talking about <laughs> whether or not one can change their sexual orientation. And there'd be debates in the cafeteria about me <laughs> and I wouldn't know anybody at the table. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I, I think uh, that question, I literally recoiled when you said the question so what does God want in your life I 
it's one of those questions that like the tone presented and from whom presented can mean so many different things so many things and it's just because I'm thinking of how many times people have asked me that question and who and obviously you know where that took you that path has been so dramatic and so impactful and um damaging at, at times you know yeah it's like story after story you hear like that and it's just how that question is misused and how god is misused through that question and weaponized it's Sorry. Yeah, no. Slight there's... sermon. <laughs> I didn't mean to. <laughs> I, I think it's really valid. There, there are so many well-intentioned and well-meaning ways that we do sometimes ask valid questions for problematic results, right? Like, I don't think he was trying to harm me by asking the question, what does God want for your life? Yeah. And I'm certain, certain his mom, who was the, 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 Bible study leader that night wasn't trying to to initiate an ex-gay agenda in my life but things do happen right we're all human and we and we we lead from broken and incomplete knowledge and 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 places and if nothing else uh I really count I count this this season of my life that's beginning as the foundation of of humility for me because when I tell you the zeal and the audacity <laughs> that were present in this young 17 going on 18 year old young man who's on fire for God and willing to sell out and and willing to stand in controversial places for the kingdom of God yeah I get it like I know we we can feel very right about the things we say and and if we see something that that confirms it in the Bible we're like oh yes this is it but I hurt people too. Like I led people to the same church that eventually ended up hurting me. I, I, I taught people things and, and, and encouraged people to respond to their emotions in ways that were dismissive and that were minimizing. And people made choices that are irrevocable as a result. And so I, I get it. We mean well, but we, we are in the image and likeness of God and the, the power of life and death really is in our tongue. And so in the same way that people said some harmful stuff to me, I said harmful things to others following that same path. And it does make you recoil. Like I, I still feel it physically in my body, but it's also my reminder that God works through all of our mess and will redeem all of this. And so, like, I feel like if my story can be redeemed, um, I won't say that, then yours can too, because that's kind of trite. But more so, the the fact that God would redeem my story, is, is I hope it gives hope to others who feel like, I just, I mean, I just want to be pleasing to God. I just want to do right. I, that's what I wanted. And I'm still on that on that path, but, but from a very different place now, because it's just like, yep. I could do all the things that I think are perfectly right and still never be the thing. <laughs> and God still won't give up on me. Um, so hopefully that's a reminder to somebody that, you know, whatever broken relationships you have or whatever ways that, that you've strained some of the connections in the family of God and, and the church or whatever, that, yeah, hang in there. Like, I think love really will eventually win. And now I'm preaching. <laughs>
finger we feed scarring souls with the lies that we keep tear down the walls tear down the walls tear down the walls between Darren, so I know kind of the next part of your story, we kind of move into this period of what, what you have defined in, in your blog as spiritual abuse. Can you tell me a little bit about what do you mean by that? What did that period of your life look like? Yeah, so essentially for the next eight years, I... Um, became increasingly involved in this non-denominational charismatic church with this very, uh, this very influential church leader who had very high demands and very high control of the life of everyone who was part of this church. And it, you know, it started off very much high praise very oh you you guys are doing the things you you're you're bringing people to church we would pack eight people into a hyundai elantra wheels dragging you know foundation of the car dragging on the ground to get to church on a wednesday night as a bunch of college students and people were just like oh my gosh they are they are doing so you know everyone around us is really excited about what we're what they're seeing and and the the meanings that we attach to that but as as each of us got more and more involved, the the demand or the and the control got higher and higher. Um, in retrospect, I would say my, my pastor was a narcissist, and um, narcissists aren't these monsters who walk around with horns on their head. They're nice guys. They're nice nice folks who smile and and compliment you and draw you in, yep. make you feel safe and and valuable. Who doesn't want to feel that, right? Yeah. And so as we got more and more involved, more and more demands were placed. And as more and more demands were placed, we were reminded how much we were missing the mark more and more and more. And for me, as I think I got ordained in that church at about 19 years old, I was trying to be all that God called me to be with no training, no real formal kind of education, no We weren't part of any denomination that had any accountability or anything like that. I'm just a young, zealous man of God, the prophet of the hour, the one that God is using on the campus of St. Xavier. And, you know, all this stuff for a person who's just coming into their adulthood and just blowing my head up. And no one would have said I was walking around with a big head. No one would have said, oh, Darren, so full of pride. But it created or it it bolstered in me this greater than bigger than life expectation that I live to some impossible standard of holiness and perfection. And so, yeah, for the next eight years, it becomes more and more doing things at the church, working at the church, serving at the bookstore, going to pick up the donuts, cleaning the toilets, balancing the books, which I still can't balance my checkbook, like, because we don't use checks now. But again, when you're in this place where it, they make every single thing you do about the will of God and serving God's kingdom and that your life, you just need to forget about your life. Um, I did it. I took it literally. I gave up my life. I gave up everything. And if you Google me, you'll see it. It's been told a thousand times. So I won't go super deep into it. But this is 
this pastor, when he heard my testimony of not being gay anymore, he told me I should be ashamed of it. And I should forget that that was ever a part of my life and that I should never talk about it again. And I believed him and I kind of blocked it out for a season and erasing a whole part of yourself leaves a void that needs to be filled. And I filled it with church. I filled it with church activity. I filled it with being Minister Darren and serving everyone and not doing anything for myself. I struggled with self-care. I struggled to prioritize just bathing myself. If, the, if it was between bathing myself and running to someone's assistance, it was like, well, I'll get to it later. Very, very unhealthy. And, and eventually I moved into the church because uh, at some point I'd, I'd shared with him that I was still struggling and he's like, I'm going to help you. So again, like this very warm fatherly kind of, you know, if you really trust me, if you really believe God, then I'm going to help you. And that led to two years of me living in the church basement and cutting off like my local friends, especially if anybody who was gay or friendly to gay people. And that when that wasn't enough, uh, it led to me living in an old Sunday school classroom in Indiana uh, for two years, where that was the first time I got sat down for ministry, and I quit school, and uh, I shut down my business, and I told friends and family to forget about me. Um, and all of this was under the premise of, I need to sell all, forsake you know, forsake everything and take up my cross and follow Jesus so I can be straight, so I can go to heaven. Even though theologically, I knew that didn't quite fully make sense. It was like, well, Jesus's church leaders put him to death and God resurrected him. So maybe in some kind of way, this is my, this is my cross to bear, right? This is my thing. And I was willing to go with these increasing demands because I meant it when I said I'm sold out for God. I will take up my cross and follow. Um, but unfortunately, I was following a narcissist in a cult. And all of this was in Jesus' name. And to the outside world, the church looked great. We were doing amazing work. We were changing laws in Illinois around recidivism. We were helping people uh, who had felony records get jobs. And we were increasing the school attendance and and we were getting other churches to to join in this effort to change our neighborhood that led to changes in the state we had all the outward works but on the inside it definitely was a tomb it yeah. definitely was a place where where if your family came then you're probably going to end up split up if you were of marrying age you probably wouldn't get paired up by the pastor to date someone like it was not good. And it would be years before I realized that lots of people have similar kinds of experiences, especially in churches um, that are POC or people of color. Um, my church was 99% Black. And because you're a minority within the larger society, it's easier to feel like, oh, well, we're different because we're Black or because we're from yeah. this specific tradition um, because you you survive whiteness in the larger society all the time and you never feel like you fit in. So your church being quote unquote weird doesn't feel weird. Yeah. 
And we even had this culture where we were like, oh, well, white people ain't saved, saved, because you had to be some kind of extra level of saved, unless they do church like we do. And it was so interesting how that carried even after I left that church. I, and I, I'd grown up, I went to a high school that was pretty diverse between Black, white, and, and Latin A. But uh, I still managed to internalize some of those thoughts and thinking that white people weren't seeing me as the same or that uh, my worship was somehow going to be offensive to other people. And all of that was just these ways to isolate us, to make yeah. us feel like we need to stay separate. I'm curious for you with all of all of that pressure that was put on you, what was your body's reaction to that in that time? I was very disconnected. I've, I've been in therapy for years and I'm just now starting work on trauma recovery. And like I said, I, I, I didn't think it was important to care for my physical body. Um, I put off haircuts. I put off all kinds of stuff. I mean, I, I was cute still, but <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't a priority. Right. <laughs> Saying, I don't want people to think I was looking like somebody's forgotten child. But again, like the ways that you prioritize caring for yourself got completely minimized. Everything was, was in head space. Everything was right thoughts and right behavior. Um, but caring for yourself, thinking about your future, I shut all of that down. And the fact that healthy human beings who have a sexual desire, because you can be a healthy ace or a row person, but um, healthy human beings have sexual desires. And my church was teaching me that all of my desires were horrible and bad and sending myself and other people to hell. Um, and so I demonized my body. It was like, we, we all did collectively, right? It was yeah. leave that man, forsake that woman. You need Jesus. You, you don't need nobody else, um, which is so not the gospel at all, but it made sense in the context. I just, I spent a lot of time in my head. I've always been somebody who obviously can talk a lot, but yeah, I just, I disconnected from the needs of my body even further. In 2022, I am still just now getting back to some of the tenseness in my stomach. I'm just now getting back to some of the tightness in my, in my shoulders. I'm just now getting back to feeling hungry or feeling a lot of things that it was just, oh, that's just a distraction. That's just the enemy. One more point, because I don't normally think about this. Um, part of that season of being at like in that most extreme place living in the in the Sunday school room in Indiana. I was fasting 48 hours a week. And I've, I've told that part of the story before, but I'd gotten down to I'm six foot two. I think I was I think I was like like 150 pounds at my smallest, something like that. Something ridiculously. Wow. I'd, uh, I'd gotten very, very thin and the body dysmorphia still saw myself as fat because I'd always been kind of a, 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 a chunky kid. But yeah, I, I struggled to see this growing into an adult body as worthwhile and valid. And so, yeah, just there was such a deep disconnect. Yeah. I really resonated when you said we collectively demonized yeah. the body. And I think of it both in the context of just like broader Christian culture that we demonize mm -hmm. the body in general, yeah. but thinking in your context specifically too, it's like, 
collectively everyone demonized your body Mm -hmm. and it's like and I think that my own context it's like yeah like collectively my web of people demonized my body and I'd never thought of it in that way before and it's such a it's such a horrific way of thinking about it and I think a very accurate way of thinking about what happens to queer people in these conservative contexts and we as guys or at least anyone who's who was raised or socialized as male have a privilege in that our bodies being demonized are more of the exception rather than the rule but when I listen to uh, the experiences of, the, of my siblings who were raised as, raised as female in the body of Christ, like, my God, everything, puberty, oh, you're going to cause men to stumble. Yep. The fact that, that, especially if you're a woman of color, oh, God, all these curves, you can't, you can't wear that. You're, you're somehow sinful simply because your body grew the way God made it. Yep. And everyone else's lack of control and disregard for basic things like consent is somehow your fault or your problem so i you know i i do like look through my story and try to find points of empathy for stuff that for the most part i don't have to be subjected to but is such a pervasive part of the experience of so many women in in the church and it continues today yeah uh, fortunately, there's some TikTokers who are making some really f- awkward but on-point parodies. The parody is there's a youth leader who pulls aside a young guy and says, hey, you, you know, it's that time where your puberty's happening and you're getting kind of large down there. You know, it sounds horrible, like, when to even, <laughs> like, say those words. <laughs> but how many girls got called out because they developed breasts? Oh, yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> And then we're told that they need to then be hiding and minimizing and and, and so forth um, at this time where they're still trying to figure out what's going on and adults are doing that to them. So yep. my, my last little thing with that is uh, my band that I sing in the many, Leslie Michelle, who's a black woman, thought we should we should have a song about our bodies and God calling them good. And not as a metaphor for the church and not as some like super spiritual, no, our physical bodies. Um, And that actually led to a whole liturgy we do about our bodies that includes things like mirrors and washing and and so forth, where we get an opportunity to kind of reclaim the beauty of our bodies. Um, Because for so many of us, our bodies have not been seen as good. Our bodies have seen as too much or too little or, or too this or too that. Yeah. And it's a whole spiritual practice just to stand and look at ourselves and say, this too is good. You gave us these bodies and you called them good. You gave us these bodies and you called them good. After all this experience, what was kind of the next step out of this into a new environment, a new faith environment? Yeah, the the next step is one that I'm only beginning to talk about now, but the next place that I go to 
is a large church that's non-denominational, but very evangelical. In retrospect, while my campus was pretty diverse, it was still dominated by white evangelical culture. And it was one of the churches that created so much of what white evangelical culture is. And like I said, I went to school in, in kind of some diverse environments. So I felt like I was, okay, I can, I can flow with this. This is, this is good. I get to use more of myself and not minimize some, some of the pieces. And kind of right off the bat, I, I let them know, I was like, hey, I'm struggling with, quote, same-sex attractions and struggling with pornography. And I, I you know, just want to live for God and, and I want to get this right. And their response was, you know, well, we'll walk with you. We, we all have struggles. And I thought, okay, this is finally a, a safe place because many churches wanted me to come and be a good dancer or worship leader or graphic designer or photographer, all stuff that I was doing at the time. But they didn't want me to come and bring my, my, my struggles and to be honest about that. And I thought, finally, I found a church that's ready to really like walk with me and hold me accountable and all this. And I even found a therapist there. My first therapist that I went to for about three years helped me unpack a lot of the junk that happened in the previous church. But I didn't realize they'd also be helping me walk through when that church eventually restricted me in nicer ways, but similar to the, the other one that I talked about. So at this point, I have two churches. I have my spiritually abusive church, and then I have my gaslighting church. <laughs> Trauma. Trauma laughs. Yeah. Yes. Yes. No, I, I understand. It's a knowing laughter. At this time where we're kind of, we switched from the spiritually abusive to the gaslighting church. What was it that in you that prevented you from exploring more gay affirming Christian spaces at that time? They, they weren't saved. <laughs> yep. they, they, they didn't believe the Bible. They, they, and I'm, I'm, quote, I'm quoting the, the, the mindset of the time. This is not what I actually believe, but yeah. they didn't believe the Bible. They, they weren't the kind of people who really took God seriously. Yeah. And so my, my lens or my framework to see people who were really serious about God were people who essentially believed what I believed, but in some way they were doing it in a way that was a little more sustainable than the abusive church. So this church wasn't affirming, but they also weren't scared of me having a struggle with same-sex attraction. I was still able to lead after telling them that I had this struggle, at least for a season. And it really wasn't until their intentions, which I think were honorable, that we like really do welcome all, you know, that welcome word that's kind of a trigger for so many of us now. Yeah. Um, they really did want to welcome people. And if you talked to the people there, I was out there. There was no, there was no secret about that. But I was also practicing abstinence, which to most people, they read that as celibacy. And celibacy was the expectation of the church, but it never been written in any place accessible and so by accident, I was quote unquote qualified, but it wasn't until other people in the church started getting restricted for things like going out to the movies with a guy. And I was like, wait, what? Like, 
what what was the line that he crossed and eventually i got restricted because someone i didn't know and never heard from before emailed me from the office and said well actually email email my worship pastor and, and asked how how are things going with the with those things I described earlier with same-sex attraction and pornography use. And I'd been in a 12-step program at the time, so I just told them. And then they immediately sat me down from leadership with no further conversation. I was like, wait, what? This isn't new information. What, what changed? Yeah. And as many churches do, the only thing that changes is when they know something. Because I've been the same leader, the same trustworthy person, the same communicator, the same person who's been leading and growing the, the, the ministry all this time but now you know something that you're not comfortable with and you have a policy that that definitely excludes people like me and they tearfully reiterate the policy to me even though it's very very clear that they don't believe that it applies in in my case and that's that's where um that, that's the beginning of me advocating in churches specifically for policy changes. I don't, I don't fight theology. I am all about, let's be really clear and accessible about what we believe and how that applies to, to serving, working, living, being a part of the church, because that's where the harm is. Yeah. I asked them, you know, I told them. And they didn't know because it was it, at that point in that church, in my gaslighting church, to find out what our stance on homosexuality was, you'd have to know to email a very specific secretary. And this is a 2,500 person church. I mean, 25,000 person church, 25,000. You had to know to email a certain secretary who could then send you a PDF of the elder statement. But there was no, we had a web, we had multiple websites for our multiple sites. We had published thousands of books, literally. And the only way to, to find out what we believed, including for staff, is to know to email a certain person. So that's why I say policy is the thing that that I I work on so hard because many churches say everyone's welcome, but you have to like do three back turns and, and know this password to find out what welcome actually means in the terms and conditions. I occasionally get into arguments with people on Facebook, which is, as we know, is always a great idea. And yeah. it's uh, very productive, generally. <laughs> Don't worry, Brendan. You'll you'll change their mind this time. <laughs> like... Exactly. This this person, I'm gonna change their mind. But I got into a, an argument with someone about third way churches, which I mean, it's whatever. But I basically said, for me, it's like, I actually don't feel comfortable in those spaces for the same reasons that you just explained. Is this because what is, what of me is actually welcome in this church? And how far can I actually go in this church until I'm traumatized by something? Mm -hmm. And so it's like, to me, I'm like, I would almost, and this is just, I'm speaking for myself. I would almost prefer someone to be like, actually, we're homophobic. And I'll be like, cool, I will not go to your church. <laughs> Thanks <laughs> right. for letting me know. Right. <laughs> Where it's like with the, the kind veneer, only to have like the floor drop out from under you after you've built like a support network there for months to years. It's like, that's devastating. That's trauma. And it's like, I think there's good intention in a lot of what these churches are doing and what your church thought they were doing. But it's like, but in reality, I just, why, 
what is welcoming about that ultimately? Mm -hmm. So I have a, I have a framework. So there's, there's three different ways you might look at this. At the moment, this conversation is entirely focused on marriage only. And we don't realize that I think, especially in progressive spaces, but let's, let's just unpack this. Churches that believe marriage is only between a man and a woman, those churches who don't believe that you need to change your sexual orientation, but believe that your best response to that, to a same-sex attraction or being LGBTQ, is to be celibate or decide to get heterosexually married. I hold space for that as completely valid as long as you have written policy that is explicit and clear about that and you have financial commitments to the people you're asking to remain single for the rest of their lives, that the church should be their family in a tangible and tacit kind of way if that's the ask that the church community is making. For third way churches, what is possible needs to also be very, very clear and accessible and so forth. And in my experience, third way churches are churches where everyone is is fully able to be in leadership all the way up to whatever the highest level is, if that's pastor or elder, where people are free to be married. Maybe the church doesn't perform marriages, but it's not going to penalize you if you get married. And you can still be a leader in the same church if you say, no, I don't, I don't believe that same-sex marriage is God's intention, but I'm not going to get in the way of someone else on our staff or in our congregation who does believe that same-sex marriage is blessed by God. We're choosing to do life and, and ministry together. And then lastly, affirming churches or churches that believe that God does bless same-sex marriages and so forth have done some formal work to do that, not simply, oh, we welcome everybody and we have a rainbow flag on the door. But again, there needs to be policy written. It needs to be in the charter of the church or whatever official documents there are. Because there's a very large, very well-known church in Chicago that is always on the front lines for LGBTQ advocacy and has many, many people kind of assume that I go to that church sometimes because I'm like very black and very out and very gay. And I'm like, actually, they, they don't have an official affirming stance and they won't do things like perform your marriage. And for churches like that, that have this very progressive veneer, it's because the money is still tied up in, in a traditional or a conservative ethic when it comes to marriage. And so for all of these churches, I say it does not matter what your theology is coming in until there's written policy that is fully accessible to the entire community. None of it's safe. And unfortunately, people think we have right theology, therefore we are this or that. Um, some of the old language would be side A or side B or third way. None of that counts until it's written and it's official, I would say. I think people say, well, we believe this, so we're xyz and i'm like no belief is not enough it needs to actually be a part of something that's accessible that 
just like just like churches aren't walking around without an actual budget <laughs> they're not walking around with the pastor not having some kind of contract or formal agreement about what payment is like why why on earth do we think just because oh well we believe this and we said it in our heads that that's enough so yeah I, I i'm hoping i'm not being vague but there's some very specific ways that i that i feel like all of this is mushy and unclear and we have to get cl way clearer than we've been because we've been emotional about loving gay people if that means that loving them until they're straight or loving them because they're gay or whatever we're emotional about it but we have not done a lot of the real work to make sure that we can name protect and provide for the people we say we love and thank you for the clarification on um the third way that was good to know appreciate that yeah but this actually kind of segues into something I wanted to ask you about, which is your advocacy work. So I know that you do a lot of advocacy work and specifically around this. So can you tell us a little bit about what does what does that look like? So right now, I basically keep raising my voice and crying loud and sparing not in the public square um, until people come to listen. So sometimes that is often that has been posting things on Facebook and talking to whosoever about these topics. In retrospect, what I've found is that often people who are very assured of their position want to engage me publicly. So there is a certain kind of confidence and, and, and certainty that will engage with me publicly because they're basically presuming that I'm wrong. And this is just to make sure everybody else knows I'm wrong. Right. I don't mind dealing with those people. And for 20 years, I thought those are the people I was affecting because I've had 20 years of people making policy changes and so forth. What I have learned in the last two, three years of my existential crisis is that I wasn't actually affecting them. I was just very good at being patient with them. But in, in my patience, people see the public this discourse that happens and see me do it over and over and over again. And the people who are watching and reading and not commenting, not hitting like, none of that, nothing that the algorithm picks up. Those are the people who have had questions that they can't articulate, who have had things happen like a kid came out in their family or a spouse is, is questioning their orientation or you know, a coworker is transitioning in their gender. And those are the ones who are like reading this dialogue to figure out what do they believe. And these end up being the people who, to me, look conservative because they speak that way and they come from that church and, and so forth. But they also end up in my inbox. They, they show up in secret and I don't mind it at all, but they show up in secret to say, hey, I, um, my kid just is questioning and they want me to use they, them pronouns. What should I do? And I'm the one who shows up. And again, without this agenda of telling them what their theology needs to, to be, I help them work through how to love their kid as their kid, however that, whatever that looks like, and just how not to be harmful. And so what ends up happening is that the people who change or the people who happen to have this transition of perspective are the people who already had questions, the people who, who came from the places that had all the answers, but they have some question that that the certain and the the zealous folks don't have an answer for at least one that's not practical or working in their lives and so i found that my advocacy is 
making myself publicly visible as a resource and then helping um, churches, individuals, organizations to think through what these ideas and what these questions mean in real life. And so I, I am very open with my, my past and my history. And some of that was my trauma. I thought if I told you everything, you couldn't get mad and, and reject me later. Found out you still would. Using the horrible stuff that's happened to me to start the conversations that people have been unwilling or unable to have. I know a lot of worship leaders who can't have a controversial conversation like I have, unless it's in a secret Facebook group or if it's in an inbox, but they would get in trouble at church for asking about my perspectives. And again, like creating the space where somebody can come in and find that out and find out that there are LGBTQ Christians and find out that we have whole conferences and find out that we don't all agree either on lots of stuff, important stuff, um, to find out that outside of your bubble, your city, your town, your church, your community, that there's a lot going on. And that, you know, what you heard on the news on Fox or CNN isn't the whole story. Then take steps to do something toward loving people better, toward re reconciling with your family member, toward being a loving parent for your queer kid. I've done the work both in churches and in, uh, in the public square in, our, in the way laws are formed in this country to, to make changes that, that affect everyone. And so I'm doing everything I can to, to, to let people know we can have these conversations and that you don't have to be alone because that's what trauma is, being alone through something. Yeah. It's not just going through something, it's being alone in it. And so in whatever ways I can, let's talk about race. Let's talk about gender. Let's talk about sexuality. Let's talk about disability. Let's talk about newer divergence. Let's talk about all these things and how they connect because contrary to, to some popular beliefs, these are not separate and, and unrelated things, but all of it overlaps and impacts. And until we start seeing and telling this bigger story, we're going to feel like, oh, the world's just out of control. And this is just a bunch of people whining about a bunch of a bunch of stuff that doesn't matter. But, you know, if we look at lives and we look at the stories that they're connected to, just like those folks who, when they wrote policy that said that somebody like me couldn't serve in the church, but then they met me and experienced me leading worship. And all of a sudden they were like, oh, wait, we don't want you not to lead worship. We want those people who are, we are in our imaginations not to lead worship, but you, you have a gift and you have an anointing. Oh, yeah, you wrote this disconnected from humans. You wrote this disconnected from story. Open your eyes, look all around. You aren't alone. This is your home. Come and remember who you are here. Do this to remember who I am. Come. So through this amazing story you have going here, um, and even the dialogue with people going into your inbox and writing these questions, a big theme of this and what you talk about on your blog too is belonging and the concept of where do I belong. And through this journey, and you've talked about this new part of your life right now, where do you think you are belonging now or what's this journey? 
into belonging looking like right now in your life? You know, we, we've made some fun of the of the term welcome and churches like everyone's welcome, everyone's welcome here. Um, but belonging is this really deep, rich, potentially transformative concept where instead of people getting invited to something that doesn't, that they don't own, that they didn't create, that they're just, oh, come sit in our pew that we already built, that we designed and do our thing. Belonging is ownership. Belonging is like, this is ours. And this is just as much for you as it is for me. And how this continues to grow or what it's shaped like, we all have a part and an and, and, and integral role in making this. And so my band, we, we, we do sing a lot about belonging. We do have these songs that because the church is great at making songs that are full of joy and excitement about our journey with God, but when people go through hard and difficult times, sometimes it's hard to find the song for that. Sometimes it's hard to find how to bring that up in the Bible study or to bring it up in the prayer group where it's not just a gossip fest. And so we have been very intentional about leaning into lament, leaning into these times where it's a well-established biblical practice that most people haven't even heard the word in their churches. It's, it's a foreign concept often. And so we make uh, space for people to, to mourn, to have grief, for people who have been out, outcast and ostracized from the church. Um, I find that it is hardest to talk to people who haven't had to go through multiple forms of not belonging. So the pastor who's confident because of their 30-year marriage often doesn't have the same level of, of, of empathy as a pastor who ended up divorced and lost their whole congregation as a result. It's not to say that, that one's better than the other, but I do find that when we've experienced loss, especially if it's something that we can't control, it's often so much easier for me to make the connection to, to how we're all connected, how we do belong in the body of Christ together, how we don't have to exclude and minimize and defend ourselves against difference. And so for me, belonging becomes, what are we building together? What is our community that we're building together? What is our, our intention, our movement, whatever it is that we're building together? And that everyone who is in the image and likeness of God can find a place to thrive. Belonging, I, I feel, is this concept that we all seek. It's very human for us to need to feel part of a group. Even in an extreme sense, many people who join, uh, for example, white supremacist groups, it's not necessarily because they believe that there's a master race. It's because they feel like they don't belong anywhere and those groups are willing to offer belonging. And as humans, we need that. And, and many people who join a supremacist group leave after two years because they realize that the belonging they got wasn't worth the stuff that was being spewed out. But there's, there's a deep loneliness that I've been reading about and, and beginning to study in our country and in our world. Um, we spend more time alone and isolated. And I think the pandemic has uh, really amplified our awareness of that. So yeah, I've been, the advocacy I do is intentional about expanding the, the edges of the tent saying, okay, well, we, like I said, we've talked about marriage to the cows come home, the laws have changed. 
And once that passed as a, as a Supreme Court issue in the U.S., we decided, okay, on the conservative side, the attack became against trans folk. And in the progressive side, we haven't really done any work about gender. We haven't talked really about trans and gender expansive folks. And so we still have gay people who are transphobic. We still have folks that were beloved, like J.K. Rowling, who comes out as transphobic after writing all these Harry Potter novels that have gay character, <laughs> right? Like, I, I still have too many gay male friends who use, like, T-words and stuff saying, oh, I can't be oppressive because I'm gay. It's like, ah, ah you can't. <laughs> you can we all suck at helping to make sure people belong. And so I keep reminding people that there are some folks that need to also belong, including in Christianity. And so it feels so upsetting for people that I'm advocating for both folks who believe you should be celibate and folks who believe that monogamy is the devil itself and we don't need to have any of it. Like, I got room for all of you. <laughs> yep. Because I see the image and likeness of God in all of these people. And I try to have yeah. empathy in all these places. And the church churches are always like, oh, that's okay. We're not going to do that today. Can we just talk about, like, if people should get married? We've done that till we're blue in the face. We got so much more. Because there's no, there's no reason that, that ace and aromantic people shouldn't feel included somewhere. And I don't know a progressive or conservative church that has any awareness of the needs of asexual people and aromantic folks. Because we, we've been worried about marriage. <laughs> yep. Something it made, that you made, it made me think of this is so many like dinner table, kitchen table conversations I have with people about different manifestations of queerness in the different forms of the community. And the thing that people always say is, well, I don't understand it. And in my mind, I'm like, you don't have to understand it. Like, and I, I loved this word, the word empathy that you used. It's like, you don't have to understand it. Cause in reality, if you don't experience it, you're never really going to understand it. Yeah. Like we just have to have empathy and we have to be open-hearted and we have to listen and we have to trust the experience of someone who is not us. Yeah. And so I love that you said that the empathy piece, I think that is something that is really, I mean, it's hard for everybody, Yeah, but it's so important. It's, it is incarnation to me, right? It's, it, it is God deciding to be here in human form and, and suffer alongside with us, even though God, in many ways, that it's a paradox, right? Like, you're God, you don't have to suffer, you don't have to be with us. But for Christians, and many others, like God showing up with us means something very important. And then us being asked to go and do the same, I think we, I think the work rather than to just have an intellectual understanding, which is what I think we too, we're too busy seeking after, is to feel the pain of another, to, to suffer with, yeah. which is what compassion spells out. Like it's suffering with. When it gets to that empathetic, that compassionate, that, that personal story-based connection 
instead of, well, the chromosomes are this, or the hormones are that, or the DNA is this, because all that stuff gets more and more vague. The, the more you understand it, the more vague it gets, and the less you really know, air quotes. But when we get that empathy, when we like can like put ourselves into that story, I certainly have a history of being trans, trans antagonistic because I thought, oh, well, they're just this, they're just that. And in listening to one of my friends specifically who is intersex, which is not the same as trans, he just described so many of these conflicts and challenges he had that I'd never had to think about as cisgender, as yeah. male, um, as somebody who is in many spaces perceived as masculine, not all, because, you know, this hair is, is laid. But I never had to encounter some of the things that that he had to work through, including being abused by his family because he was he was assigned female at birth. And what I realized was that, oh, you can know who you are, even if everyone and everything else outside is telling you different. Because he knew who, who he was as a small child before anybody talked about any genitals or anything like that. And it took me back to a story of my own where as a very young kid, I was very shy, quiet, high-pitched, mousy voice, long, curly eyelashes. And in Chicago winters, I'll be wrapped up with my face covered like we are in these masks now and a hat on. So all you could see was these eyes and hear this high-pitched voice from this artsy kid. People would always go, oh, so, say, say to my parents, you have such a pretty girl. Oh, she's just so nice. And I'd be like, I'm a boy. <laughs> no one had to coach me to, to correct them. And no one, no one would challenge me as a cis man saying to someone, I'm a boy. Yeah. Now, how could a three-year-old know their gender is, the, is the, the thing that we launch against the idea of trans kids? Yep. But we do it all the time. So the empathy isn't that I need to understand what it is to be trans. The empathy is that I need to understand what, it, what my gender is that I've never had to think about and understand the, the gifts and privileges and benefits I've had as a cis man who has been misgendered and still is. Like these masks, there are times when my hair is down. My hair, for those who don't know me, my hair is like at my butt. When my hair is down and the mask is on, I've had folks walk up to me at Chick-fil-A and like, hi, ma'am, can I take your order? And I said nothing. I said, yes, I'd like a sick, you know, like nuggets <laughs> and some waffle fries. And the the flush red embarrassment that they just, they, there was no training in the Chick-fil-A manual for how to correct that. And so they just moved on with the order and just corrected their pronouns at that point. But I've been misgendered and I understand exactly how I felt yeah. in that moment. And I use that to bridge myself into understanding another person's story and putting myself into what if everyone, your doctor, your, your parent, your friends, your partner, what if everyone misgendered you all day long the way that I experienced it that one funny time when I was at the, at the drive-thru yeah. or when I was at the restaurant or you know when I was a kid? What if that was your whole life? Yeah, you'd be sensitive and react every time somebody does it because mm. it's been happening to you your whole life. It happens to me once so I can laugh it off. But for the other people, it's a thing that happens over and over and over. So whether it's about race or gender or sexual orientation, there are ways that if we just spend some time looking at ourselves and, and understanding another person's story, 
that empathy will, will come naturally. So in the midst of this advocacy work, so we've got our advocacy work and we also have identity as a person of color. We have an identity as a gay person. And those identities, there's a lot of both like big picture societal oppression on those things mm -hmm. in our culture right now. And of course, like small picture, you know, there, there are daily oppressions that are faced with that too. And so what you're describing is you kind of are intentionally stepping into spaces that might be not safe for one or several of your identities. How do you manage that? What is that? Where is that line for you where you're like, I can do this, I can be in this space and do this work. And then I also need to be over here and I need to take care of myself and I need to be safe. So my, my capacity for that grew out of lots of childhood unhealthy dynamics, um, minimizing myself, trying to make myself almost invisible, just blending in. Um, if you haven't seen it yet, the movie Encanto uh, definitely, definitely is a must-see. And there's one character who, he's a, he's a shapeshifter. He, he becomes everything. Whoever he's interacting with, he often morphs into their, their physical shape. That's his, his gift, his ability. And for me, it makes me super well-loved in churches, right? Because I can morph into whoever you need me to be in that moment. I can, I can be the worship leader. I can be the, the graphic designer. I can be the em empathetic person who's willing to share a testimony. I can be Johnny on the spot, solving the problems and putting out fire. I can be a lot of things for a lot of people, but where do I get my refilling and energy and care? And because I've been a lot of things for a lot of people in the past, a lot of people like me. And I'm an, I'm an extroverted ambivert. So I like making new friends. I like making new, new connections. But to care for myself, to see myself, and not to, to look at myself through the lens of what other people need me to be, that's been the work to grow in. And that's where I'm growing a lot right now, especially as I do my own trauma work. And so getting to know myself is the new, is the new hot thing. Like I've gotten to know how to be and serve and be liked and pleasing to all kinds of folks all kinds of groups. And I spent years of my life either muting parts of myself, trying to eradicate parts of myself, amplifying parts of myself, playing up certain abilities I have for the sake of others and being liked and accepted by others, being welcomed by others, being tolerable and respectable in the eyes of others. But now it's like, yeah, no, I have to, I have to spend time with me. I have to get to know me again. I have to know what I want. I have to figure out what I'm going to do. 20 years of my life were spent avoiding all dating, sexual, and rom romantic contact because it made, it made me the perfect gay. You didn't have to worry about me bringing anybody home. You didn't have to worry about me showing up at church with somebody on my arm. You didn't have to worry about me having sex. You didn't have to worry about anything because as long as you liked gay people, I was the easy one to like. But now, do I date? I don't know. Certainly interested. Do I, do I get married someday? I don't know. Do I, do I start an OnlyFans page? I don't know. <laughs> but that's, that's going to be for me and, and up to me because I know I'm loved. Yeah. I know that I have 
chosen over the last probably five years to surround myself with people who could love me no matter what not with condition not based on what I can do for them because I can do a lot for a lot of people but those aren't the people who are going to fill me up the people going to fill me up and be with me are the people going to be with me not with my ability not with my gift not with my talent not with my articulate speech they're going to be with me when I'm a mess and crying at nine o'clock in the morning because I'm going through rejection sensitivity or when I'm needing to be reassured because I just feel like I'm not good enough or something like that. I, I, those are the people who get into the inner circle. Those are the people who like Jesus on the, on the Mount, when he was trans transfigured, not everybody saw that the inner circle saw that. And knowing that you have to build and choose and be intentional about having an inner circle who can see you in ways that other people can't, that's where my source is now. You know, to be evangelical, yes, God is my source, but God is in, God is in these people who are tangible and real because God designed me to be in community, in relationship, and uh, simply shirking off every opportunity to be vulnerable for the sake of no I've got to live up to some expectation I'm an Enneagram too as well so if you follow that at all you know that me helping others is like the bread of life yep but me helping myself that's that's the jam that's the that's my playlist right now Our final question that we ask all our guests is um, if you could give a piece of advice to the individual who's still in the closet or looking for a community, um, healthy community, really, uh, what's that advice you would give to them? What a time to be alive. For so many years, finding community, finding resources was was it required you to physically find nowhere to look and then to physically go to those places. Uh, there's such a wealth of community online and so many things like even even the Q Christian Fellowship Conference this year was 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 100% virtual. So we see people who are in, even in other countries who don't have access otherwise finding community, getting involved and liberating themselves in the process, uh, liberating themselves to be more themselves in places that are safe and, and want to see you thrive. It doesn't mean every place is safe. Not every Facebook group is going to be safe. Not every, not every TikToker or YouTuber that you follow is going to be safe, but there's such a, a, a wealth of resource and community and connection to be found whether that's, again, whether that's a Facebook group or coming to an online conference or just taking the, taking the risk to, to let somebody in and tell them your story, don't be alone is really what the message is. Like I'm talking practical stuff about where you can connect to the people, but I think the, the core of that message is don't be alone. You don't have to be alone. You shouldn't be alone. You don't deserve to be alone in figuring out your life. You weren't you weren't created in isolation. Why, why do we think that we need to work all the stuff out in isolation? Um, so reach out. And if you are, if you're worried about harming yourself, trevorproject.org uh, is a wonderful resource with live chat where you can talk to people who can just make sure you're not alone and get you connected to other resources. By all means, like I said, I'm an extrovert. 
slide my DMs. We'll talk. Thanks. Um, and then finally, do you have anything you want to promote right now? Sure. Uh, as always, I've, I've mentioned a couple times, my band is called The Many. Um, we can be found on themanyarehere.com. Um, if you're a church leader and looking for resources, especially videos that you can use in online worship or anything like that, we have a whole store with lots of, of liturgies. Like I mentioned, our bodies being good. We have a whole liturgy with poetry and songs and music and, and the song called These Bodies. All that's all ready to go and, and for you to, to, to engage with your congregation or your small group or whatever. So I'm very much about like creating things that that can go out and be used and transformed in other ways. So I'd love to see more people doing that, taking a risk, having a conversation. Other than that, uh, check out Q Christian Fellowship, check out the Trevor Project. If you're in Chicago, come say hi, but from six feet apart. Visit DarrenCalhoun.com um, or look me up on Facebook and uh, yeah, keep in touch with, with what's going on because there's always something going on. Awesome. Well, it has been an absolute privilege having this conversation with you, Darren. Thank you so much for taking this time to be with us and share your life and your wisdom uh, with us and our listeners. Yes, thanks for having me. This this is some stuff that's not exactly on on any of the other podcasts right now. So y'all getting a y'all getting a scoop in some ways. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>